Great. Thanks, Jim. Hey, good evening, uh, Ireland and uh, UK and Europe. Uh, and good morning, Jim. Anybody out on the West Coast? So glad, uh, so honored to be invited to come speak to Tusnua. I, uh, uh, you know, am so excited to uh, enter this dark period uh, of history with the pandemic and uh, discover that our agnostic meetings, wherever we are located, we're able to connect in an international way and uh, discover one another uh, wherever we were. That, was, that has been an incredible experience uh, during the pandemic era. I've, I've had the honor of uh, hosting one of the uh, higher paloozas, uh, presenting at one of the higher paloozas. Uh, uh, my sister and I have led, led a meeting uh, for Marsha in Toronto. I've led meetings in LA and New Orleans. And, and uh, it's just been a, a, a tremendous experience to uh, uh, travel the world via cyberspace and, and Alcoholics Anonymous meetings, particularly agnostic meetings. It's been incredible and uh, exciting. And I, I hope it bodes well for that period of time after the pandemic is in our rearview mirror, which seems to be uh, coming soon. So uh, hopefully we will be able to get together in various places around uh, around the world. So uh, I, my, our stories disclose in a general way what we were like, what happened, what we're doing now. And uh, I, I, I was talking about uh, before the meeting about early leads and how long uh, I've gone and, and uh, you know, uh, I think when you first start leading, you tend to like lead a long time. You know, you have a lot to say and you dump a lot. And then I think as you go along, you realize that we're charged not with giving you every damn detail, but that, but in a general way, uh, connect with uh, what your experience was. And uh, my experience, my sister, Amy, is here today. She's my baby sister. Uh, and she is much younger than I am. And so I was second of uh, second oldest of six kids and grew up in a working class family uh, in a county uh, that was just to the west of, of uh, Cleveland's uh, county, which is called Cuyahoga, uh, which is Indian for Crooked River. Uh, Cuyahoga River, the Cuyahoga River got some uh, notoriety because it caught fire during the worst of the pollution uh, in the 60s and early 70s. And uh, uh, Randy Newman wrote a song called Burn On Great River. And I've actually, my office is right at the river at this point in my life. And it, it's very cool uh, to see that uh, river clean up. And this is a great area of, of to live your life in. It was also a pretty uh, um, fertile place to become an alcoholic, which is what I did. I was not one of those people who had a drink and 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 knew immediately that I was going to become an alcoholic. I had known some alcoholics growing up uh, as a kid. I worked with people who were raving alcoholics. I had a uncle who was a, a, a pretty bad alcoholic. 
so there were always alcoholics in in my life, but uh, uh, you know, I I I don't think it's a matter of of um, education or a matter of uh, genetics. I drank in my case, I drank myself into being a drunk, and that was a progressive thing. Uh, it, it didn't start early in my life. I, I can, you know, I, like a teenager, I had maybe one or two drinking experiences as a teenager. Uh, I went into the army at the age of 17 because I was a pretty smart, um, kid, but I didn't, I didn't have the experience within my family of how one goes to college. And I knew that if I went in the army and I did a certain period of time in the army, that I could get uh, the GI Bill, which is an American benefit for veterans to uh, put myself through school. And that's what I did. So uh, I, I ended up in Augsburg, West Germany, when there was a West Germany and East Germany. And uh, Augsburg is a town in Bavaria uh, that you could easily drive to Salzburg or you could easily drive to Munich. But since everybody took train we took train to go to those places and and i had a lot of um, interesting cool experiences um very little very little problem with alcohol even though this was really vietnam era and a lot of people had come from vietnam to um locations throughout germany and there was a lot of drugs and a lot of alcohol and i avoided most of the problems with that my drinking accelerated uh, somewhat in college, but it was like bar band. Um, bands uh, go to see a band and get drunk in a bar, that kind of experience. And it happened once a month, sometimes, uh, sometimes less, sometimes more. Uh, it began to accelerate some. I could drink a lot, uh, but drinking didn't impact me at all. Uh, other than in my relationship, I married a high school sweetheart uh, because our parents uh, didn't approve of us living together without the uh, without the uh, uh, formality of a of a wedding ring and a and a marriage. It was a blunder to do that. It was a blunder for her because she would become the first victim of my, of my alcoholism apart from myself. But in college, I was a straight A student. I I, I uh, I was successful in college. I had received a fellowship at the end of college, and I, I ended up going to law school uh, in Cleveland, and that's why I landed in Cleveland. I didn't drink through law school, largely because um, law school's daunting, and I was at a, a really first-tier school, and I wanted to do well, and I did well, and uh, I ended up in a job, and that's really when the wheels started to come off for me. Uh, I, I essentially began to drink uh, all the time. Uh, I began to drink on a daily basis. Um, it, it actually began with happy hours. You know, I'd, I'd go to happy hour once a week. Uh, happy hour, which is one of those oxymorons. In my experience, you rarely find very happy people at happy hour. Sort of like gentlemen's clubs. You rarely run into gentlemen at gentlemen's clubs. So happy hour was one of those experiences where uh, 
the happy hour, which used to be four o'clock on a Friday for me, began uh, after lunch on Friday, began uh, on Thursday and then Wednesday and pretty soon happy hour expanded uh, till it uh, took over my my entire week. Eventually, uh, my wife, who was this little tiny gal who worked at a a little tiny red-haired gal uh, who worked at a uh, school system that was entirely African-American. She was one of the few um, white um, teachers in that system, and they elected her president of the teachers' union. So she had this weird schedule where she'd work as a teacher, and then her evenings would pretty much be dominated by union activities. That school system, she'd ultimately take them out on strike um, at one point in time. So she was always gone, which, of course, you know, fit my, you know, drinking, which, you know, had become daily. And eventually the strike would settle and, you know, she didn't have quite the the reason to be away from home in the evening. But I had noticed that there was this weird pattern where she was not coming home at times where I thought she would be home. Not like, here I am, I'm like always fucking drunk, but I expected she'd be there at a certain time. And when she didn't show up, when I thought she would be there, uh, I really took notice. And, and one day I kind of met her at the side door and I must not have been um, drinking that evening. And maybe I'd forced myself not to drink. Uh, and I said, Hey, I've noticed that you haven't been coming in, uh, and you haven't been leaving notes and, and what's going on. Uh, she goes, um, I'm going to Allen on me. So now I gotta tell you, I, I was about 20, maybe six or seven at that point, And I wasn't terribly sophisticated. I didn't know all that much about alcoholism. I mean, I knew a lot about alcoholism, but I didn't know, I didn't know really anything about recovery. I, I wouldn't have been able to tell you how many steps there are in, in recovery. I wouldn't have, but I knew that people went to Al-Anon meetings because somebody in their immediate orbit, maybe a family member is an alcoholic. So when she said, I've been going to Al-Anon meetings, I, I looked at her and I said, really? I said, who's the alcoholic? She looked at me like, you know, I had a like third eye right in the middle of my forehead. And she goes, you are. I'm telling you, I was so shocked and so surprised. I, I, my, I was speechless for a moment because I'm rarely speechless. And I said to her, I said, you're crazy. I, I'm not an alcoholic. I just like to party. I just like to have fun. You know, uh, I'm, I'm a, uh, okay, I can drink, but I'm just having fun. And um, she just burst out crying. 
eventually, you know, alcoholism, you know, drinking a lot, even if you aren't an alcoholic, is corrosive. You know, if you're drinking a lot and you haven't drunk yourself into alcoholism, you're at risk for DUIs, you're at risk for all kinds of, you know, behaviors that you might not engage in if you weren't impaired. And that certainly was true for like my morals. Um, you know, I, I'd formed these relationships with women that I shouldn't have been forming. And, uh, you know, I was beginning to lose my mind over trying to keep all of those balls in the air. And, and uh, eventually she had had enough. And she said to me, wouldn't you be happier living somewhere else? And I lived over on the east side of town. And I said, yeah because I knew a girl over on the west side of town. So um, I moved over to the west side of town and uh, eventually we would get divorced. Uh, but I have to say her actions in going to Al-Anon meetings were some of the most fundamental blows against my denial system. And oh, I was in denial. But her action in going to Al-Anon meetings pierced my denial, pierced what I thought about myself and about my drinking. It was the first time somebody who knew me in an undeniably intimate way, knew me from time I was a young guy, from time I was a teenager, knew that I had drunk myself into a place where I was an alcoholic. And for all my denial, that stuck in my head, and I wasn't able to get beyond that. Um, so two to three years later, seeing the marriage counselor slash psychologist who became my psychologist, uh, I was back in that guy's office talking about her thinking I was an alcoholic. And him asking me, why don't you go check that out? Why don't you go check out your oversensitivity? What I called my oversensitivity to being labeled what I was. And uh, that night uh, after, and it had, you know, some obviously kind of stupid, stupid uh, drunk tricks that you do. Uh, I had injured myself falling down drunk. Um, uh, being scared, uh, and I ended up uh, in a parking lot after work, dressed in my lawyer suit, uh, getting out of my luxury car, and walking into my first AA meeting. And I heard an old guy speaking. Now, I had this vision of what AA meeting. I'm sure most of you have before you ever came to an AA meeting, had some idea of what AA means. I figured they're all shaky people there with like styrofoam cups and chain smoking cigarettes. I had this vision of what that would be. It wasn't anything like that. There were people hugging and laughing and, you know, but I still, I walked in, I was very dubious. I thought this is going to have nothing to do with me. But I walked in and, you know, that it was in that era, it was 1986. They had big posters of the 12 steps on the wall. Well, I learned how many steps there were that night. And 
they had all this like old English script uh, sayings on the wall and, and a literature table. And, and you know, I, I knew I was walking into a cult because they like were already doing cult things, you know, like, hi, I'm Joe C or I'm, you know, Sally B. And, and you know, it, it was that kind of um, that kind of experience. And, and but I took down, took a seat and this old man's giving a lead and he's telling this weird story about, you know, he had been a famous football player at Notre Dame. And then he was a he was a coach at like one of the famous college back when college football was bigger than the NFL. He was a college football coach. And then then he lost everything. And he was like living in an appliance box under a bridge somewhere. And and at the night on the night that I heard him speak, he uh, he had been sober something like 800 years. And I, I mean, I truly nothing he said was anything I could relate to. Nothing. It was just like, OK, OK. Then he said the magic words that changed the way I thought forever. He said. None of the things I've described you know, the way I drank, the consequences, none of that defined me for me that I was an alcoholic. What described me as an alcoholic was even when I wasn't drinking, I was thinking about drinking. That was, that was the switch in my head because I knew that was true. I knew that fact about myself even when I wasn't drinking, I was planning to drink the way I wanted to drink, and I wanted to drink myself into a stupor. Even when I wasn't drinking, I was dealing with the consequences or telling the lies that I needed to tell or pushing away the people I needed to push away to enable me to drink the way I wanted to drink. If my girlfriend at the time said, Billy, let's go get a pizza, my first thought would be, not where the best pizza in town was, but which pizza parlor had a liquor license because I had to deal with the contingency that maybe had to wait on the pizza to be ready. I, everything, everything was refracted through my thinking about drinking in a way that would enable me to drink the way I want to drink. And that was to be hopefully passed out on my own floor having had enough, having drank everything. So that was, that was the moment. That was the lever. That was the big bang on the head. That was the, you know, you can be, you can have your name on the letterhead, your name on the door, and you can have the luxury car and you can have all of these things, but guess what? You're an alcoholic and you're an alcoholic because you not only drink too much, but you think about it. It is a mental obsession that became a physical compulsion in my life. And it was controlling my life. And I, within days, I could see it as clear as I had seen every, I, that night I had the white light experience, not the white light experience of my creator coming down and saying, son, you know, you are an alcoholic and I will save your life. No, it was the white light experience of connecting the dots. It suddenly 
became clear that this permeated every area of my life and my thinking, my conscious thinking and my unconscious thinking. And aware that I could recover, that I could recover and from the disease of alcoholism and my life might be better. So that's what I did. I started launched in Alcoholics Anonymous. I got a sponsor, the same sponsor I have now 34, 35 years later, 36 years later. Same sponsor, great guy. He was the guy who does what I do. He was about 10 years older. He had 10 months of sobriety at the time that he became my sponsor. And he had to ask his sponsor. And so I had a grand sponsor and a sponsor at the same time. And they're great people and they're wonderful people. Um, and, uh, you know, I really got into the program. I liked it immediately. I loved the, I loved listening to people. I love going to lead meetings. I loved discussion meetings. I became a founder of a lot of meetings. Uh, my life got so much better. It was amazing. Um, I became a, a prominent attorney. I was one of the attorneys who did some of the early work uh, in the States um, on uh, suing the Catholic Church for child sex abuse. Uh, I'm, you know, this is not a brag, but, but I was one of the pioneering people, and I'm in some of the histories of the clergy sex abuse crisis uh, in, in uh, the United States uh, for work that I did. Uh, and as I got busier and busier, now 10, 11, 12 years into recovery, um, what happened? I got it. I got it, babe. I know how this works. And I fell away from AA meetings. And I kept going. You know, so I heard early on somebody says going to an AA meeting is like clipping a coupon and putting it in the bank, clipping a coupon, putting it in the bank, clipping a coupon. And you can, you can keep drawing on that bank account, even when you aren't at an AA meeting, but you aren't supposed to walk away from AA meetings. You aren't supposed to walk away from the fellowship. And I don't know, I, I you know, I got too busy. I, I didn't have kids and then I have kids. And, you know, all the excuses, all the bullshit, all the excuses. So uh, around 2001, 2002, um, I wandered in, I had, I had some reversals and I had, my dad was dying and there's a significant thing there with my dad. Uh, my mother had died and, uh, uh, you know, I thought I had, I apparently rationalized, I had enough excuses. No, I should probably, I'm a grown up now. I can, I can stop in a bar and have a couple. And that's what I did. I had a couple beers. No problem at all none whatsoever a couple of weeks later i think well, i can stop in a bar and have a couple and i was able to have a couple no problem i got this i got this now within weeks i was in worse shape than i had ever been in my life and that continued for um seven long years seven hellish long years 2008, 2009, I came in, uh, I stopped drinking, came back into Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, and I had a IRS criminal investigator uh, following me around. Ultimately, I'd get prosecuted 14 months sober. I would go to federal prison for attempted tax evasion. Um, I had drunk my way from a high-bottom drunk 
into a really low bottom zone. Uh, it, it costs me a professional license. It costs me um, a multi-million dollar business. It costs me reputation. Uh, it nearly cost me my family. Uh, I don't know why they were insane enough to stay with me, but they did. Uh, I got sober and I stayed sober. And I got actively involved uh, in uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and I have not left from that day forward. Today is uh, middle of February. I celebrated, yeah, you don't really celebrate mid-year anniversaries, but I celebrated 12 and a half years of continuous sobriety, middle of February, this last, well, a couple of weeks ago. So um, this is, uh, uh, you know, the great joy in my life has been uh, that as I was going along, uh, I, uh, a, a guy contacted me through an online recovery forum and said, hey, I'm in Cleveland. I'd really like to go to a, my first AA meeting. Would you go to an AA meeting with me? And I had been going to a certain AA meeting uh, at this local church that's right up the street. Um, and um, the um, uh, I suggested this guy that we go to that meeting. It was a Saturday morning big book meeting. Uh, and... Uh, and I had been going to it on a, the same meeting on and off for 30 some years. Uh, it had changed locations a few times, but um, I probably have, have done the uh, big book, uh, every word in the big book back and forth, I don't know, um, dozens and dozens of times. Um, so, you know, this was a comfortable meeting and, and uh, I knew a lot of people there. Uh, one of the guys that I knew, a guy by the name of Jeff, who had kind of sat with me and was a younger guy in the program, he had disappeared from the meeting. And so the guy contacted me and said, hey, could we go to a meeting together? And I said, okay, well, let's go to this meeting uh, up at this um, church. And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, I've heard about this agnostic meeting that just started. Uh, could we go to that meeting? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. You know, and so we wandered over to a little library. It's a branch library of this massive library that we have in town called Lakewood, uh, Lakewood Public Library. And this is the Madison branch, a little neighborhood library. And we wandered into the basement for the say, and there was my friend Jeff who had disappeared from that Saturday morning big book. And he had become the founder of Westside Agnostics. And I wandered in, there were about six people at the table. And Jeff was really happy to see me. And uh, this this guy that I met was a brewmaster at one of the first, uh, what it was, uh, craft brewery, breweries. He was one of the first brewmasters at, at Great Lakes Brewing, which became a really major regional brewery. And uh, uh, so he goes to his first AA meeting with me. And Westside Agnostics becomes my home group. I loved it, loved it. And it was amazing what happened at Westside Agnostics, even in the physical uh, pre-pandemic years. Uh, we just celebrated our eighth anniversary as a meeting. But in those early days, uh, 
there were just a handful of people. Eventually, Tracy would join us. I, you probably all have encountered Tracy along the way. And uh, we had a couple uh, older guys uh, who had come, were regulars at the uh, uh, We Agnostics, which is up in Cleveland Heights, which we always call the mother church of agnostic AA in Cleveland. Uh, but we boomed. We 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 boomed. Our, our physical presence got so large, we outgrew the little room we were jammed in. We started spinning off other meetings. And as a physical meeting, we, in a very short order, we had had almost every night of the week, we had a physical meeting at this library. Our Saturday morning meeting was so big that we would have 90 plus people divided into two rooms because of the demand. What we discovered was that there was a huge demand for agnostic AA in Cleveland. And uh, you you can't be around agnostic AA and, and, and realize that, you know, we're really about getting sober and staying sober. We're about the fundamentals of Alcoholics Anonymous. We're about engagement. We're about willingness. We're about open-mindedness. We're, we're, we're about supporting one another. And our meetings weren't dominated by, you know, 25 minutes of prayer activity. And, uh, you know, we got to the meat of recovery. Uh, we don't pray for kittens and, and children who are going to be abused. We work on, I'm going to be a sober person and maybe contribute a little more to the universe. And it's, and it's been a fundamental, exciting experience in my life. I, at one point in time, I, I started sponsoring so many guys in the meeting, and I, I actually sponsored a couple of women in the meetings as well. But at one time, I'd look around the room, and most of the people in the room were guys I was sponsoring. It was, it was a kind of hilarious situation. But you stick around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough, and you're going to see all kinds of like miraculous things happen. You know, we saw... We've seen people come in who are just, well, during the pandemic era, one of my, one of our favorite newer guys showed up on his deathbed, on his deathbed. He had been given eight days to live. And instead of dying, he got a liver transplant and he was doing okay, but his kidney didn't restart. And so on the day that he got a kidney transplant, that evening, he was at Westside Agnostics AA meeting. So the miracle of sobriety was happening even in the pandemic era via Zoom, that this person would be there in his bed it has been one of the most striking and stunning experiences uh, of, of my time in sobriety. But I, I, I've seen all kinds of remarkable stories. You know, it, it, to talk about miracles of sobriety in, in an agnostic or atheist sense, I'm not talking about magic thinking. I'm talking about things you don't expect can happen happening. I, and having faith, a belief that doing certain fundamental things that are not magic, can work miraculous outcomes in people's lives. That's what I'm seeing 
as a member of Westside Agnostics. I see incredibly profound experiences happening. A few, uh, a couple months ago, we celebrated the 50th year sober of one of our leading atheist agnostic members. 50 years of continuous sobriety. Uh, we're seeing long-term sobriety and we're seeing people come back from Narcammed, being Narcammed dozens of times. Uh, it's, it's, it, it is a phenomenal experience and I feel honored to be one of the original members of Westside Agnostics and, and well, one of the leaders within, within the group. It is a great honor to be there and to see uh, these amazing people come through. One of the more exciting characters to come through is a guy who's real hostile to us. Uh, his, his, and he'll tell you that. Uh, a great guy up at the central office. He was in charge of the schedule book. And early on, you know, a lifeline for a, a physical meeting was to get in the schedule book. And he'd go, why are you guys doing this? I, and I said to him one time, I said, hey, why don't you come check us out? And he goes, why would I do that? He's now one of our people that we look to and we love and uh, has become a dear, dear member of, of Westside Agnostics. It, it, that is what I'm doing in my life. And my life has been transformed. Uh, there's this great uh, novel that came out of Scotland a couple of years ago called Shuggy Bane. And I've talked to people about the novel Shuggy Bane. And, 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 and I said, you know, Shuggy Bane is a powerful, I'm, I, I'm very much into reading and literature. And I said, you know, Shuggy Bane is, is a story uh, that is very realistic to my life experience in recovery. And it was heartbreaking and, and so tragic and sad. I said, but you know what? When recovery works, in my experience, recovery is transcendence. Recovery is life. Recovery is life. And sometimes the transcendence is to a place in recovery that you never even anticipated or imagined possible. And that's been my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous. Thank you for being part of my recovery family. I really appreciate, oh my God, I've gone like 40 minutes. Uh, thank you all very much. Uh, uh, I hope uh, you have a wonderful day wherever you're at. Uh, and thanks to Snua for being part of my family as well.